A reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 8. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand, beside the gates, in front of the town. At the entrance of the portals, she cries out, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. God created me at the beginning of God's work, the first of God's acts long ago. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, when God had not yet made earth and fields, or the world's first bits of soil. When God established the heavens, I was there. When God drew a circle on the face of the deep, when God made firm the skies above, when God established the fountains of the deep, when God assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When God marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside God, like a master worker. And I was daily, and I was daily God's delight, rejoicing before God always, rejoicing in God's inhabitable world, and delighting in the human race. The word of the Lord. love the Bible. It's revelation, and it's unendingly fascinating besides. But sometimes I have to admit that I'm reading along, la 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 la, I like it, but then I get struck by its boyness. Proverbs is a very boy book. I mean, a lot of the Bible is a little boy, but Proverbs is very, very boy. You get the feeling as a woman that you're listening in to a conversation that's like going on in another room, a room that smells like men, a little like aftershave and goats. <laughs> Proverbs is set up like it's a sort of lesson from a man to his boy, manny, boy. The father desperately wants his son to be wise, but he knows just saying that wisdom is crucial and beautiful isn't going to get his son to want it. So for the sake of getting his son to want it, pursue it, desire it, he embodies wisdom as a woman. Clever. Wisdom is calling you. Can you hear her? She's calling you, her lips, with her lips, which are like honey. Maybe you don't think you're that interested in wisdom, but she wants you. And she has breasts. And she's beautiful and a little bit sexy. What do you say, boy? Go after her. I mean, 
It seems like a good way to get your 14-year-old son to want wisdom. But I'm not sure if it works for me in quite the same way. It smells a little bit like a locker room. Not really. I mean, actually, I can appreciate the dad's pedagogical method. I don't think I ever had a teacher try to encourage me to learn in quite that way, with that method, at least not in Sunday school. But maybe it would have worked better than what I learned in Sunday school. If the teachers tried to involve desire, like the way to wisdom and knowledge and truth has to do with somehow following your desire, not actually blocking it, cutting off, condemning, vilifying, stuffing desire, but involving it in the pursuit. You'll find what you need to live a full and good and meaningful and God-filled life by following your desire? I'll sit in that room, old man, if you'll have me. Goat smell, fine. The dad, though, also embodies folly as a woman. I wish there was a better word for folly. I don't know if that resonates, but maybe something like vacuous meaninglessness or vapidity or sloven thoughtlessness. But anyway, wisdom and folly are both enticing, actually. They both have lips dripping with honey. But folly, golly, she might seize you and kiss you. She perfumes her bed with myrrh and cinnamon. She says, come, let us take our love, our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. But with folly, it's all smooth, talking vacuousness. It's a lie. She won't fulfill your desire. It's BS. She'll lead you to hell and death. But if you go with wisdom, your vats will be bursting with wine. And feel free to hear that as an erotic metaphor, because this book is really full of them. Go with wisdom. She will be refreshment to your bones, son, your bones. The father teaches the son by talking about these two things in pretty erotic terms, actually. Wisdom and folly are both potential lovers for the son. It's like, boy, don't make love to folly. Don't let her ensnare you. Wisdom is calling, and her lips deliver what they promise. She loves those who love her. Her fruit is better than gold. She delights in her lovers, and happy is the man who listens to her and waits daily at her gates. Think double entendre, waiting at her gates. So what are you going to do? Are you going to go with a strange woman who promises way more than she can give? Or are you going to eat wisdom's honey? I can see how that might work as a pedagogical method. The Bible is way more interesting than a lot of people give it credit for. If you pull the Proverbs out of this conversation, this dad trying sort of desperately to entice his son to wisdom, they sound like listings of what's good and bad for many chapters, on and on and on, black and white, what good people are like, what bad people are like, a little dry, tedious, tedium. Like it's all these sorts of little bits of practical wisdom about morality that you might consider cerebrally or something. If you want to be wise and good and righteous, prudence and discipline, don't talk too much, don't show off. But in the context of the book sets within this conversation, it's really more of a description of what it's like to be intimate with folly, 
to choose her as your lover? Even in laughter, the heart is sad, and the end of joy is grief. But what's it like to be intimate with wisdom? From the fruit of his mouth, a good man eats good, how good it is. It's not some purist worrying over their personal morality. It's like trying to flesh out what is the joy of making love to wisdom? And what is the futility and emptiness of being intimate with folly? Wisdom's intimates, it's like Wendell Berry walking the land growing organic tomatoes. Folly's intimates, a nation of people sitting on their couches watching reality TV. It's like Harper's Magazine or Entertainment Weekly. It's like my kids planting seeds and reading on the screen porch. Or my kids sitting in the basement playing Xbox. And you know, the dad's right, I've found. It doesn't work very well to get my kids out of the basement by saying, you know, why did we ever buy that stupid thing? I hate Xboxes, rotting your brains. It's bad and terrible. And we're all bad and terrible because we're having this thing in our house. It'd probably work a lot better to, like, entice them away from it with more beautiful things. Entice them with something truly pleasurable. Pasta or strawberries or the love of God. I don't know. I'm not saying I'm very good at it. But I can say that truly, I would desire to be more intimate with wisdom. Wisdom, according to this teacher, this father, isn't at all like cerebral decisions. It's like Jesus saying that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The pursuit of wisdom in the way the father describes it is a sort of erotic pursuit. I like thinking of it that way. I'm not saying like sexually, though the father does use that imagery, but I'm thinking of it as, a, as an embodied pursuit. Eros isn't necessarily sexual, but it is love embodied. It's a kind of desire, yearning that you experience not just cerebrally, but wholly. To desire to join with something outside of yourself. It's the creative impulse towards joy. So I'm reading about this connection between wisdom and eros and in Proverbs, and I like it, and I think it's so interesting, and so I go to try and see what else is written about this. Um, and I start looking more broadly at all this other stuff that might have been written about the connection between wisdom and eros. But I didn't really find a lot. But then I found this one thing, a philosophical paper about the first encyclical by the Pope Benedict Forty-First, called The Redemption of Eros. I was surprised. I'm not that familiar with the Pope. I've never even considered quoting the Pope before in a sermon, and now I feel very compelled to. So apparently the Pope is fairly adamant that Christianity needs to re-embrace Eros, passionate desire. Passionate desire's got to be a part of it. Cutting off Eros from our definitions of Christian or godly love makes it sterile and impoverished and unreal and like nothing that you'd ever really want. The Pope is concerned about that. 
The Pope is into redeeming Eros. I feel happy about that somehow. Nietzsche, who was super frustrated, super frustrated by the sort of sterile, lifeless, resentful, prudish, German sort of goody-goody lifelessness of Christianity said, Christianity gave Eros poison to drink. He did not die of it, to be sure, but degenerated into a vice. And the Pope is like, what were we thinking? Giving Eros poison to drink. We need it, her, him, it, to give us life, to lead us to wisdom, communion with God and each other. There's no reason to be hostile toward it or threatened by it. We don't need to belittle it or vilify it. Sure, maybe desire is notoriously difficult to control. But the sickening of Eros hasn't made our love more pure. Maybe it's separated us from wisdom, our true desire. It screwed us up. The Pope says... Eros drives us outside and beyond ourselves through a glimpse of beauty that offers us a foretaste of the experience of God. It's the presence of God's life among us. To desire is to be open to the world. I think there's something humbling about desire because it's this reminder built into our body and our soul that we're dependent on what is other than ourselves. But this dependence is the place of all the relationship, the loves that fill human life with meaning. God has a desirous love for the world. And as any lover knows, one of the greatest gifts a person can receive from another is the gift of being desired. God's love for us isn't dutiful something that God forces God's self to do. It's passionate. Okay, so did I mention it's Trinity Sunday? And this is one of the texts for Trinity Sunday, and it's because of this sort of poem in the reading for tonight where wisdom, this decidedly womanly figure, lips dripping with honey and breasts and alluring, this embodied woman says, I was there at creation. So the church fathers are sort of scouring the Jewish scriptures for texts that will help them determine, in the midst of their controversies about the Trinity, whether or not Jesus is co-equal with God or not. And they arrive at this text, and it becomes absolutely key in the Trinitarian debates. Any modern scholar would say that's totally an illeg illegitimate way to read the text. You can't just pull something from its context and use it to prove a doctrine that came into existence, existence centuries after the thing was written. But I like it. I mean, look at her. This lovely lady, she, her, the woman, gets into the debate about the Trinity. I love the wild paths that orthodoxy takes. Jeez. I like to think of her there. From the church father's view, the her part wasn't that important, really. She prefigures the one who's going to come, Jesus. But whatever they thought, there she is, bending over their shoulders, 
her hair brushing over their cheeks. Maybe they were intimate with her. Maybe they weren't. But she's in the room, man. The embodied love of God. That is cool. A large part of the scripture tonight is a poem where wisdom describes her beginning, where she came from. She wasn't created by the strict logic of man rationally conceiving principles to live by. That's not where wisdom comes from. As she tells her story, she was birthed by God. And the way she tells it is like she was birthed by God. The image conjured by the verb for being born here is not like a man with his tools constructing something. It's a mother laboring, birthing a baby. She's God's firstborn. She's birthed before the foundation of the world. She's with God as God creates. When God created the world, wisdom was with God like a nursling. A good translation of the text would read, a nursling. That means a nursing baby. That's not God with some worker guy at God's side, drawing blueprints and measuring stuff. That's God with a nursing infant, God with little wisdom at God's breast, God trying to nurse a baby in one arm and create the world with the other. I don't know what it means, but what a great image of wisdom. What a great image of God. And wisdom, the text says, was God's delight. She brought God great joy. The text has her frolicking before God all the time. That's the word frolicking. And her delight, the text says, is in humanity. There's more emphasis on joy and play than any other activity of wisdom in the text. And it says that wisdom is the beginning of God's way, as if in giving birth to wisdom, God gives birth to God's way. I don't know what that means either, but maybe the way of God in the world, God's way is involve, involves an enormous amount of delight and play and joy. As God delights in wisdom, the text says, so wisdom delights in creation. Her seemingly lofty origins at the bosom of God, God's self, far from breeding in her contempt for the needy, fragile morass of humanity, fills her with love for the world. She doesn't take her place on the street corner out of some obligation. She's not like a wrong out, burned out social worker doing her duty, teaching humanity how to live. She's not just barely tolerating their feeble attempts to interpret or comprehend her. She's not just barely tolerating the noisy human enterprise. She loves humanity, loves creation, delights in them and it. More even, she desires them, their companionship, desires them to love her. Wisdom in times and places came to be known as the word of God, the divine spirit that pervades the world, the incarnation of God in the world. Don't you like that? The Trinity, this incomprehensible, not meant to be logical thing, but pointing to an image of God where God and God's self is relationship, moving, loving. In wisdom's story, the Trinity, the Godhead God, is not some passionless patriarch, but a mother nursing her baby, delighting in, loving intimately.
a God who has a desire for humanity that is so intense that God provides God's self as food for our nourishment. Tasting is a very intimate way of knowing, and we're actually invited to taste the love of God. <laughs> 